Tonight, we revisit Project Beta with the author of Project Beta, Greg Bishop. Greg has been interested in UFOs, the government, fringe issues and personalities, and the facts that don't fit from an early age. We're going to look into that and more coming right up on My Alien Life. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. My guest tonight is the host of Radio Mysterioso, but I also came to know him from my own research into the Paul Benowitz story a while back. He's the author of several books, and it's my honor to have Greg Bishop in the studio. Thank you so much for joining me, sir, and welcome. Thank you so much. Um, ready to go. Uh, hopefully, more people are listening to these shows because you know what? There's nothing else to do right now. So, you know what I noticed too that some of the podcasts that. Uh, that I've, I've listened to once a week or maybe twice a week, they're doing like a show a day. So, you know, all those podcasters, like all 900,000 or a million of them, they're putting together a lot of content right now. Wow. I mean, I, I don't even know if I could do that many shows. I, I know. Mean, I know. I, I mean, got then, so many, I got so many other things I want to do. I'm not bored. I mean, I don't, I've got this, my personality, I have a self amusing personality. This is an old sub genius thing. Um, you just can't get bored because you've always got something to something to do, and or you have two speeds: a lethargic and panic. Right. And, um, and it's funny because lethargic and panic is running together for me. So my panic is kind of uh, mellowed out, but my lethargic is like, well, I don't have any any uh, deadlines for anything particularly. So um, 
I guess I'll just uh, I guess I'll just do what I what I can every day. I mean, just a little bit every day. And then also, I still work for um, Coast to Coast, doing their web stuff at once in a while too. So that's that's one of Very my jobs. Cool. But I can do that from home. So you know, I think it, with me, it's um, being stuck in the house. My mind just wanders and gets super creative because there's so many things I want to do. And when I somebody tells me I can't do something, that's when I get really creative and I just go and start doing stuff. And you know, I have I have an endless amount of energy right now, which is really weird. But um, you know, nowhere to not many places to put that energy. Oh, I got plenty to do. I got projects. I I keep thinking of stuff to do. I even want to do an art project, but I I can't I can't draw or paint. So I guess I'll have to do it in some other way. But. Good, good time to so practice. I got, I got all kinds of things going on. I, I think anybody that's kind of, that does things normally, that's just, you know, it's just giving them an excuse to really get into it and find out what they're doing, where they can go next, how they can expand, you know, or change what they're doing or whatever. And I, I'm not going to change how I do my show. I like how I've done my show. I've been doing it since, I've been interviewing people about the paranormal since 1998. That's kind of scary. What is that? 20 years? It's a long time. That's scary. Yeah, that's like 21 years. Yeah. 22 years. Yeah. That's insanely scary. Well, how, how can anybody do anything that long? <laughs> time time goes fast, though. I mean, it's I know you know it's, it's especially you know especially you know I'm 54 years old and that period of time for some reason the last 20 years just flew by and that scares me because. Um, Everybody tells me it goes quicker the older you get, so I don't know. It goes quicker, but also, I don't know, because the thing is, if you're doing something routine, I guess I read an article on this a while, like if, you, if you're going to a job every day or five days a week, time goes ridiculously fast because you have no signposts in your memory right. about things. But if you're always doing something different or you don't have a normal job or you're, you know, whatever, then it doesn't seem to go, it doesn't, you know, the time doesn't run away because it's all filled with memories and, and signposts in your, in, in your, um, throughout the last few years of things that have happened. And that's kind of how my life is. About six years ago, I got laid off my job and I said, let's see how long I can go without having a regular job. And that was six years ago. And it seems like a lifetime ago, but it doesn't seem like it went by in a wink. It seems like it went by in like, you know, I guess the yeah, normal amount of time. It seems like a long time ago, but there's so many little signposts in there, things that I've done and people that I've seen in places that I've gone because my time is mostly my own. And then you get to that point and you wonder, what the hell was I doing the rest of my life that I didn't have this relative freedom? What the hell was wrong with me? <laughs> so <laughs> so what, what about writing? Do you ever, do you ever sit down? Do you have to sit down and, and come up with ideas? Like when you, when you, when you write a book, do you have, 10 books in mind or a whole list of them that basically you, you visit from time to time or does it just come to you at once and you just plow through it? Well, a few of them were on assignment, like three of them people assigned me to do them. So I didn't really have any choice. Right. Well, one of them was an assignment. I mean, it was already existing material. It was mostly from the excluded middle magazine, but um, weird California and project beta people just told me, you know, publisher said, do this, here's your deadline. Wow. So that, in that case, you don't really have to do it. You know, all you have to do is like, I've got a deadline. There's no, you know, there's no anything. I just have to plan for that deadline and get stuff done. But something like, um, um, 
what I'm doing now is the first time I think I've actually said, I think I have an idea for a book and I'm just going to go and do it. And it's taken forever. I mean, I, I blew past the first deadline because the publisher didn't give me a hard deadline, which was not smart. Um, so it's, it's more like um, at this point, if I am going to, you know, when I do finish this, it's going to be a combination of planning for it because I already have an outline and a chapter list and what's going to be in the chapters. And then also just going through and starting to write um, and not worrying about if it makes sense or goes in any kind of flow or, I mean, I've already got the skeleton there, but you know, I'm not going to do a Jack Kerouac like where I just, you know, just keep typing and then stop when I feel like it's done. I've got certain ideas, but um, if I stick too much to the, to a, to a, a uh, set bunch of um, ideas or, um, chapters or whatever. If I do that, I ruin it because you have to, you have to let your mind do what it's going to do and the subject wander where it's going to take you. That's what I think. Anyway, that's, that works best for me. Right. I wanted to drop a few words about uh, a project beta and, but it's kind of different now because you told me that that was an assignment, which that's a book I can't even imagine if I ever got assigned to do a book or even a book report. Oh, no, no, I about, proposed it. Oh, you did. Okay. Because yeah, that's, that's a, that's a complicated story. Yeah. Yeah. I proposed, proposed to the publisher along with like two or three other things. And he, it was Patrick Weege at uh, right. Paraview. Um, and they had a deal with Simon and Schuster pocketbooks and they were looking for properties. And that's when I just happened to run into him in like two, a thousand one or two or something when um, he was looking for material for books. And I gave him like three different ideas and he said that one, that one there. And it was the, it was the Paul Benowitz thing. So right. that's, that's how that happened. And then it's, since I got it assigned, I had to go do it. Otherwise I wouldn't have done anything with it. And you know, you know what, it would have just been something that just, I may have written it, but you know, I don't think I would have. It's right. I do really well. Like a lot of writers with deadlines. To me, that'd be but a tough one, especially that part. book. That'd be a tough book because, um, you're researching and writing a book that's that's coded sometimes in misinformation. Did you ever feel that you had something in your hand that was factual or did you feel that you're constantly second guessing yourself while you're writing that book? No, I was just looking for soaking up as many stories in as much information and source material as I could. And then I would coordinate it. And if it looked like it came from more than a couple of sources, I'd include it and wouldn't say anything, at least two, usually three or more sources. Or if it only came from one source and I thought it was important to put it in, I took pains to explain that it only came from one source, which I think was a couple of things in the, um, uh, the text, including anything that Richard Doty told me, which uh, some of it, I didn't really have any way to, uh, to double check. So I just said, he said, or he claimed. So that's how, that's how I got through that. And, you know, I, I think as the years go by, there were some mistakes in there, but um, it's a really tough book. That, that subject's really tough to, to actually come down on any, you know, I think I got the story basically right, but there may, may be some details in there that were either inaccurate, wrong, or disinformation, and I'm not sure if they were. I mean, I checked as, as best as I could. And I tried to be honest about, I didn't try. I was honest about what I, what I found. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's at least a couple things in there that are inaccurate that I found out later, partially because I had a deadline. Like um, Dodie told me he was he was getting a law degree, so I just put that in there. I don't. I've never found any evidence to say to to prove that he was getting a law degree. Like he may have. I have no idea. But there was no way for me to prove it, and I had to put something in the book, so I just threw it in there. And what happened later is that people find things like that and they say, oh, what? look, this was wrong. How can we trust anything else in the book? How can you trust anything anywhere? You do exactly. the best you can when you're reporting um, a story to people. And if it's, you know, if it's so accurate, nobody can find a hole in it, they, you know, good for you. That's great. Um, but yeah, there's always, there was a couple of mistakes in weird California too that slipped by me. So that's just the way it is. And so what irritates me a lot of times when somebody says, well, this is wrong. How can we trust anything else? Like, this is not a mathematical equation. This, we're dealing with people and motivations and memories and all kinds of stuff, which are very messy. So you try to put them into a, a logical framework with as much uh, internal logic as you can have in it to tell a story and as much accuracy as you can have, given the time constraints and who you're talking to. And... Um, and then finally, most importantly, within within the time frame of the uh, of the deadline. So all these things are working on you when you're trying to do a story like this. And you know, it's it. I didn't write a UFO book. It was basically a spy book with UFO stuff in it. Right. So that's what I considered to be like a like a, a spy thriller, um, in a lot of ways. Well, I so, think that yeah, I, I think I, mean, this... I read I read spy books beforehand just to get my brain like kind of geared right. up for doing. Right. A couple of them. I, mean, I read I read Truman Capote and a true crime book and some other things just to get my head into the into the space of writing nonfiction. And I think the timeline, or actually the storyline of that one, could even I mean it could change indefinitely. So I mean I don't think anybody should ever, especially in the subject matter that you that you put together, um, should ever be critical on how you put it together or the the content only because well, um, they can be. But not to say that I got, you know, how can I trust anything else? If that's your, if you've got an all or nothing attitude, you shouldn't even read the book. You shouldn't read any books actually with an all or nothing attitude. That's just not the way nonfiction works. And I think looking, in, looking, okay, looking into that, I, you know, my, my um, opinion changes so, so much. I, I'm, I've interviewed uh, Richard Doty a couple of times and uh, spent, almost six hours talking to him. And, um, you know, um, my, my opinion now is, is vastly different than it was before, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I enjoyed talking to him. You know, he was a fun person to talk is, to. Yeah. Did I trust him all the time? No, that's just the nature of what he does. And if you accept that, um, you can get some information. If you're sitting there with some kind of filter on saying he's lying to me the whole time, it's like, well, you're not going to get anything. You know, that's why the title of one of the chapters in one of my books is you play the game or you get nothing. You have to play that game. And eventually, once in a while, you'll make a move that, that or they'll make a move that makes that makes sense and is logical and fits in and all that. But most of the time, you're just kind of playing mental chess. You know what I mean? My favorite part of hearing his story is his enthusiasm. And I truly, truly believe he loves every minute of it. And, um, you know, that, that. Oh, yeah, he does. I mean, he loves it. It's incredible. Um, what what about William Moore? Talk about him just for a minute. I, he's, you know, to me, I, I don't know much about him. And, and um, you know, I wish I did, but uh, that's going to be my next jump, I think. Um, 
he's still alive. I still see him about once or twice a year, actually, um, uh, when he comes out to visit. Uh, but uh, yeah, I met him just by just by what did I do? I think I called him because he was in the phone book in 1980. I'm so old in like 1988. Right. And you know, I was just I was out of college. And I was thinking, you know, I was working with a friend and I was used to be in UFO stuff and I hadn't in many years. And I found out through some means that his office was like a block from where I was working. So I left a message on his machine and I said, Hey, I'm interested in coming to talk to you. I work right up the street. And he's, and you know, after a couple of back and forth uh, phone tag messages, um, he said, well, why don't you come down and visit? And I got there and Stan Friedman was actually visiting the office that day. Wow. So I got to meet Stan Friedman too. That's cool. Did you ever ask um, um, more about uh, Majestic 12 documents? Yeah, I guess. What do you mean about? Well, I mean, he he and Probably Stan Friedman circulated them. And, and um, I just kind of, a guy like that, I kind of like his opinion on it because I think it's a, it's a strong opinion and, and, um, you know, there may have been some insight that I haven't heard. Oh, I, I don't know. I doubt it. Um, well, the thing is that I, I think a lot of people that are kind of into it know this. Stan Friedman was 100% believed everything that was in the Eisenhower briefing document, that, that, one, that famous one that tells about MJ-12 and who the members were and all that. Bill did sort of at first, as far as I can tell. Bill Moore did. Um he wrote a book with Jamie Chandray called the MJ 12 documents. And what it is was a, an attempt to um, get all the documents that he'd been handed and assess their accuracy. At the time he said, you know, and then probably half of them or more, he said, these are doubtful. I don't know. If there's anything you check them out or this is absolutely fake. Um, but a few of them, he was like, either this is as far as I can tell, this is genuine or it's reasonably certain that it's genuine. And that's what he said about the Eisenhower briefing document. In later years, he changed his mind and said, well, it's not in light of more information and information I couldn't find. I don't think that that Eisenhower briefing document about MJ-12 is true. I don't, I don't think there was any MJ-12. He, he, he finally came to the opinion, I don't think there's any, any MJ-12 as we imagine it, but there was an MJ-12. It was just, it dealt with something else. Um, but it was so buried within the, you know, the, thousands of secret programs there were that it was easy to just hang the UFO thing on it. Um, so Stan, uh, Stan went to his grave saying that it was absolutely true that everything that was in there and Bill changed his mind and said, probably not. And I guess some people would say it's because he had, people found stuff out and he had to retract. And I, I don't know. I don't think he, in, as far as I know, he hasn't done this with me. I don't think he intentionally deceives anybody. He might withhold information but I don't think he sets out to intentionally deceive um, unless you're being, unless you're being a, a nuisance and a, and a, an annoyance and not listening to him. Then he might tell you something to get you excited just to make you leave him alone. I don't know if he'd do that now, but he has done that in the past. Why do you, um, if you, if you approach him honestly and open-mindedly, which I think I did, I've never caught him in a lie or a, you know, or, uh, trying to deflect me from anything. And he says, I can't tell If you can't tell me, he says, I can't tell you. And if he can, he tells me. And then he says, either says, 
he either says, um, yeah, why don't you, you know, you, you can discuss this freely or no, that's just for your information while you're working on whatever project I'm asking him about. Not that I've done that in a while. I mean, we're just, we're just friends now. I don't really talk to him about the UFO thing. He doesn't want to actually. Why did uh, <laughs> Kirtland feel that um, Paul Benevitz was, was such a liability to, to what they were doing there? Did they, did they seek him out specifically to, to make an example or was he that dangerous? Well, he was sort of dangerous and nobody sought him out. He sought them out. Right. Um, Chris Lambright, actually, who I've talked about this a lot, he, he thinks that um, Paul Benowitz was, um, was starting to be messed with way before he went. So maybe you're right, you know, way before he went to the Air Force and said, there's something going on here and I want to talk to you about it, which is what is the narrative that's in my book. What Chris has uncovered and believes, Lambright, is that you ought to have him on, is that um, Benowitz was already being messed with way before he contacted anybody. Like he has evidence to say the Air Force and the intelligence agencies were already noticing what he was doing before he knew it. Um, and that um, the, the reason that he started getting more and more paranoid was because of that. Um, I still maintain that he was, as far as I can tell, he was kind of pr prone to believe in things that would, that reinforced his prejudices rather than um, check, check them out, um, which is, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a society wide problem now. Um, but at that point it was, uh, I think it was a, it was a problem that Benowitz was dealing with. It's kind of his Achilles heel. If it made sense to him in light of whatever he was thinking, whatever he's being told it was true. And if it didn't, then he would reject it and think it was think it was lies or disinfo or whatever. And he thought he was working with the Air Force and, and uh, Air Force intelligence. They, that's the impression they gave him. But all they were doing basically was monitoring him, um, making sure he didn't find out about stuff he shouldn't find out about. And if he did, who was asking about about it, who he's communicating with, who was, you know, who he was visiting with, whatever, and trying to find out if those people were Chinese or Russian or whatever agents. Um, that were trying to get information on uh, defense programs uh, from him since he lived right next door to one of the most secretive places uh, in the country uh, for, for, uh, for uh, national defense. Um, there's a lab there, Sandia Labs and Phillips Labs. I think Phillips is gone, but Sandia is still there. Um, that uh, work on uh, black project tech problem, uh, it, uh, uh, projects all the time. They still do. Um, so that's what they were worried about was him seeing that stuff, tr sort of getting a hint about what was going on and then having those secrets leak out. Um, and the way the counterintelligence work is you do let some of the secrets leak out because you just have to, and that's, you know, but that's so people that are trying to find them out, um, think that there's a value there because they can actually see that there's something viable and something true about that intelligence that they're seeing. But as long as they don't get the whole picture or get a picture of something that's not important but seems important, then it's fine. And I think a lot of these factors were going on when um, when all the stuff happened in the late seventies into the mid eighties or so with Paul Benowitz. So, what kind of proximity do you actually know how close he was to this base and why that there would have been a home there with such a bird's eye view, bird's eye view of uh, so many things that were top secret? Well, he couldn't see everything. I mean. It, uh, in the book, I think I tried to describe where he lived, how far he was from the base. Basically, the fence, the base fence with a barbed wire on it says, do not, do not, uh, 
no trespassing, deadly force authorized and all that. It's like there's a street, there's a main street that leads up to his house. He lives on a little, his house, his family still lives there. I think his wife, unless she's passed away, is a little cul-de-sac, like loop, not a cul-de-sac, it's a loop road that comes off this main road. And the main road, one side of it is the fence for Kirtland Air Force Base. So if you walk out his front door, you could be at the fence to the Air Force Base in like a minute or two. So he's right on the border. And you can see a great expanse of that base from his house because he's sort of up on a rise on a hill. And then he has a two-story house or had a two-story house. And he could go up on the deck on the second story and look and see most of the base. He couldn't see behind one of the mountains where where there's some facilities located. So you can't really see them from anywhere, from the metropolitan area of uh, Albuquerque because the mountain blocks it. So there's a couple of facilities all tucked back in there. A couple, there's a bunch. Um, but he could see some things that were going on uh, uh, late at night in the winter, and he took pictures and films of them. And that, that uh, in addition to monitoring uh, radio transmissions, that's what intelligence and the Air Force were worried about. So, what kind of information did he have? I mean, he had he had obviously the radio transmissions, but I mean, how much video and what else did he did he have and record well, that was really so sensitive? Any- yeah, there wasn't really any video then. He had eight millimeter, right. I think eight millimeter, maybe 16, but I think at least eight millimeter films of these objects kind of lighting up and, and lifting up in the air and then going over the mountain and, and disappearing. Um, I, as far as I remember, I, uh, Chris Lambright, I think, may have a little, actually a lot more detail on that because he actually communicated with Benowitz. I never got to he, Benowitz died two weeks before I went out to start work on the book. Um, but uh, apparently there were some kind of glowing objects that would lift up off the ground, like get really bright, lift up off the ground, and then and then uh, fly around and go actually behind that mountain where you can't see anything. It's, it's called, um, uh, I think it's called, what's it called? Wow, I can't even remember the name of the mountain. I haven't talked about this in so long. <laughs> it was hollowed out in World War II. And, um, Dolce you're talking about, or huh? you're not talking about Dolce base. No, no. Dolce's way up in the right. north okay. western corner. This was right next to Albuquerque. Um, I think not Archuleta. That's Dolce too. Anyway, um, this mountain has, uh, it's been, it was hollowed out in world war two. I found clippings from, from magazines or newspapers at the time. What they did is they stored, um, parts of missiles, bombs, and, and, and nuclear material in there. So it's very secretive. You can still see, I mean, if you go on a Google Earth, you can see all the entrances to all the underground tunnels. There's all these roads, and then these roads stop because they go inside the mountain. Um, so that was right there. Um, and he could see, you can see some of those entrances actually from the city, like the west side of the mountain. Um, the other ones are concealed behind the other side of the mountain. You have to either be on the base or in the in the air to see it. Um but uh, he, he also, so he was watching that stuff and he could see that stuff and he could see um, uh, th- these tests going on, whatever they were. But he thought it was UFOs, like the, there were UFOs invading the base. And that, that, that's the idea he had when he called them up. The other thing that happened later was he started monitoring radio transmissions because he thought that aliens were um, sending radio transmissions out and that he could pick them up and decipher them. As far as I can tell, 
There was some sort of telemetry being, being developed either to control missiles or I don't know what. And these were done in microbursts, which is um, a very fast burst of radio waves. But it has a lot of, it's like a micro dot or something. It has all this stuff encoded into it. And you have to be able to be able to receive these, these uh, really fast bursts of radio information and extract information out of them on, you know, I guess it was what, um, navigation for weapons or something like that, or, um, or communication, who knows? Anyway, um, Paul Bennett was picking this stuff up on his radios at home and decoding it. Um, which really worried the Air Force and the, and the labs that were working there. Um, he wasn't decoding it accurately, but he was decoding something, I think. So they very quickly moved to, to uh, get him to think about it the way they wanted him to think about it, which was they actually gave him a computer with a program in it, as far as I can tell. And I heard this from Air Force people and Bill Moore and UFO researchers that knew him. Um, this was delivered to his house. He, um, he installed it and it was preloaded with software because this was what, like 1980, 1981, something like that. And you had to write your own software. I mean, it was basically encoded into the hardware you had in the computer. So they gave him this and it was, it would decode quote unquote, the messages. And of course the decoding decoded messages were having to do with like aliens taking over and different races being here. And, um, I, I think I reproduced some of it in the, in the book, just the, the messages that he thought he had decoded from these microbursts. Um, and, uh, as far as I know, I've never been able to check it with, uh, except with, um, more, um, Gabe Valdez, who, who has since passed on cattle mutilation guy. Uh, he knew Paul pretty well and, um, Doty and they all said, that uh, there was a facility, or at least uh, Gabe had heard this, and then Bill Bill told me directly, and Doty said the same thing that the uh, NSA or some signals uh, uh, oriented intelligence agency, probably the NSA, because that's what you know that's what they are, um, set up in a house across the street, and we're just beaming these things straight into his radio just to drown out everything else that was coming in from the base. Wow. So it was a very, as far as I can tell, it was a very elaborate ruse just to get him to, one, not pay any attention to anything important, and two, anybody that was watching him, talking to him, um, communicating with him, whatever, surreptitiously or openly, would get a, um, a skewed view or a completely false view of what he was picking up. So, I mean, one, they wanted to keep him away from stuff, but they also wanted to fool and misdirect anybody that was looking at him, talking to him or listening to him. So it was all to keep, you know, all to keep these black projects, um, uh, uh, from information about them from getting out. Obviously some of them get out because there's agents in the government, there's agents in industry and all that, that leak some of this information or, or report on some of this information. It's all these different pieces of information to put together a picture of whatever project you're looking at. If you're, uh, an unfriendly country. Um, and, uh, so, Paul Benowitz's stuff was just one tiny little part of this um, big operation. And people don't realize this, and I keep saying it over and over. The Benowitz thing was like one per less than 1% of a giant operation of trying to find out what, what um, Russians and Chinese knew and who they were, 
who knew it, and then also trying to fool them into being interested in things that weren't important or away from things that were or, you know, misdirection, disinformation. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the Paul Benowitz UFO thing was a teeny tiny little part of this. Like if you had a, if you had a four hour movie about it, it would, the scene would be five minutes long with Paul Benowitz and that whole, that whole saga. What do you feel like, uh, what's your impression of, of disinformation now? Is it, is it equally as important? Is it still prevalent? Um, do you notice that and um, feel that it's still a, a, a top priority? In, in I think so, but not around UFO people, unless it has something to do with techno of advanced technology. If it has something to do with advanced technology and you can have the same effect, and it's a lot easier now because what we're talking about happened in the 70s and 80s. There was no right. internet then. There was no email then. Um, all you had to do was you had to, listen, you had to talk to people, listen to their phone conversations, tap their phones, and look, open their mail. Nobody does that anymore. So I think, one, it's a lot easier to see what people are talking about, UFO people, I guess, and anybody else. And two, it's really, really easy to throw disinformation out because people believe whatever they want to believe. If somebody already has an idea about, you know, especially a lot of UFO researchers, if they have a certain idea about what something is, as long as you tell them things that flatter that prejudice, you, you got them. I mean, you can tell them just about anything. So I don't think it goes on too much except maybe surgically when it's something looks like a problem, you know what I mean? Or if looks, if it looks like somebody has a piece of technology or an idea or something that that's interesting, or they're looking at something that's interesting and they want to find out how much they know, then, you know, all you have to do is look at their emails and, and look at the websites that they visit, and, you know, and, uh, like we're doing now talking over Skype that could probably be intercepted very easily. So it's, it, I don't think it goes on as much, but I do think it's a lot easier. And that's probably why it doesn't go on as much because one person sitting in an office in the NSA can accomplish in probably an hour what it took weeks or months for people to do in the 1970s and eighties. Pretty incredible back then. I would, I would, I would much rather see what it was like back then than, than now. I mean, I'm, I'm more into the, uh, the, the data collection and how they did it then. And, and, um, it just seems especially yeah, well, you just get into your confidence and you listen to what they say right. and you say right. certain things that, that make them happy. Like, you know, what's a classic disinformation thing. I'm from the government. I think, you know what you're talking about. I would like to reveal some of the stuff that the government knows about UFOs. So you tell them everything they want to know. That's why I, you know, this disclosure movement thing is it to me is like, you know, this is, this is the, uh, shows you how well disinformation and all that works. What disclosure is to me, how the way most people think of it is I don't believe, I'm not going to believe anything you say unless you tell me exactly what I want to hear. Then I'll believe it, which is ridiculous. If you're hearing what you want to hear, most likely it's probably, you know, if it's coming from a, 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 from a source that doesn't want you to know things. It's probably not that accurate. And people don't think about that. You know, what, what if they tell you exactly what the UFO research community wants to hear? There's been aliens here. They've been here for a long time. We have deals with them. They've given us technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's going on. I think it's far, far more subtle and complicated than that. 
But if you tell that to a UFO researcher, they go, oh, okay, great, cool. And if you tell them, no, that's not what's going on, they go, oh, cover up, you're lying. You know, so where, where do you, you know, if you're supposed to be dealing with the UFO community and you're some government person, which I don't think really goes on too much anymore, where does that leave you? It's a lot easier for you to just tell them what they want to hear so they leave you alone. You know, and then just go with this, you know, they're not, it, it's like when I discuss this book a lot of the times, People say, well, what about this and this and this and this? And I explain it to them. And then they ask me the same question again. It's like, do you want, do you want me to answer it in the way that you want to hear it? That, this, this is what I found out. It might not be what you want to hear, but it's what I found out. So, you know, it's, it, it, I think a lot of people that, that in the news or writers or what, anybody, even artists, like, filmmaker well didn't you mean this in your film no actually no i meant this no but you really did mean this didn't you it's like no i didn't (laughs) so um you know to summarize if if there is you know and i think there is um whatever's going on with the ufo thing there's so many preconceptions and beliefs about it that it's going to be hard for us to know exactly what it is because we have to weed through all of our cultural and psychological and social and, you know, whatever baggage, our belief systems to get to that point. And I don't know if they're, you know, I don't know if it's, it's conceivable except in our metaphors. So that's the problem. You know, the basic problem with UFO stuff is I think it's unknowable except in our metaphors and you have to fight through those metaphors just to get to the core of whatever it is. And I don't know if you can, but, um, you know, a, a government agency would probably know this or a private corporation, too, which are heavily involved in this. They would know that. So all they have to do is tell people what they want to hear, uh, spiced with some stuff that they want people to go ch- goose chase on. And then they're fine. They'll be left alone. I don't think I really I know, uh, know a subject that uh, has where everybody has their such differing opinions. I mean, no matter who you talk to, and if you talk about UFOs, everybody has their own opinion. Um, they, they have their yeah. opinion on how many different life forms there are out there, what they're driving, where they came from. It's everybody is totally different on it. I don't know where they get this information from. I don't either. That's a good question. The I mean, only, let's, let's ask yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. The only time I think that's accurate, quote unquote, is when somebody has had a personal experience. And even then, well, I don't know, I wasn't there, but somebody that just reads stuff on the internet or, um, or listens to radio shows <laughs> like mine or yours, um, that's where they're getting their information and, and opinions from. And that's not, that's just something somebody said. They can't experience that. Like if we're doing a show about, you know, true crime. Yeah. People murder people all the time. People, people steal cars all the time. People rob banks all the time. That's a normal thing. Being picked up by a, some, something that looks like a space vehicle and flown around or given a medical examination, whatever. That's not a normal thing. You, you can't produce that on demand. So it makes it a lot more squirrely as to how you would determine that something's real, quote unquote, or not. And so, you know, my, my opinion is there are unidentified. They are not the source is not human and it's not coming right from, I don't have this debunker thing where it's coming, everybody's imagining things. They're not, there is really something there. It is really mysterious. It does affect us in ways that nothing else affects us. Um, And it has a really powerful belief system going along with it. There's not too many other things that do that except maybe politics, religion, and um, I guess taste in music or something, but um, (laughs) there, 
you know, it's not, you can't, you can't fill a book with data from UFOs and convince somebody of, of anything because it's coming from a place that's not reproducible and it's not something you can do on demand. And it's not something that everybody has seen or experienced. In fact, I'm, I'm probably a minority of people seen and experienced these things. So, you know, what are we left with? Or we're left with people's impressions and we're left with some physical traces and we're left with some radar stuff, and, you know, and some generally blurry photographs. So, you know, what do you do with that? I think you, the, the only sane thing to do is to not have a belief system about it and continue to, to be interested but not tied down to any single theory or viewpoint or whatever. I mean, I, I try my hardest not to do that. So generally I'm confused more than I know what's going on. In fact, I'm totally confused about this all the time. And it's wonderful. I love that actually. It's like seeing the best, to me, it's the longest running best art exhibit I've ever seen. <laughs> kind of keeps it fresh. Yeah. So what would you say has made the most lasting impression on you with regards to the uh, paranormal in general and UFOs in particular? What do you mean specifically or it's in, in case we're talking, we're, we're talking about UFOs and, and uh, paranormal in general. Um, what do you think about the most? What, if you were to pursue this um, full time and, and doing, doing it as much as you can, or if somebody paid you a half a million dollars and, and, and gave you six months to research, I mean, what are you going to look into? I'm going to go find as many witnesses as I can and not ask them any questions. And that sounds totally insane. What I mean is that I think the closest connection we have to, to the UFO thing are people that have seen something. The only problem with that is people are not scientific instruments. They're not cameras. They're not recording devices. They're not. I mean, you could say memory is a recording device. It's not a recording device. It's something put in there to help us evolve and keep us from getting eaten and help us to reproduce and get food and all that. It's not there to record things accurately, our, our senses and our memory. It's there for us to survive. That, that's our evolutionary heritage. So when you're talking about that, if that's, if, that's what, if that's what's going on, how can you say that anybody's impressions of what they saw is accurate enough to, to be a to be scientifically useful. It's not really in aggregate of all the, you know, all the experiences because there's so many different ones. So, you know, what would my idea be for a perfect study is to go and find people that nobody has talked to yet. Um, maybe from other countries, like a worldwide survey and just ask them what happened to you and how do you feel about it? And, and not have a UFO researcher go, I tell them that it's a, it's a sociologist or tell them it's a journalist or tell whatever it is that somebody's at. It's like, I do not study UFOs. I am, my specialty is what I'm a policeman. So I want to, I want you to tell me what in your words or draw for me or whatever, what you think happened to you. And I will say nothing until you're finished. And um, I think that might, you know, that seems a little nebulous, but I think not standing in people's way, I think we might be able to get a little bit better idea of how people process this and across different cultures, because it's going to be different across different cultures. And, um, 
I think that I don't know what the answer is there, but it's got to be better than, you know, collecting 500 more cases about how big something was, what direction it went, what color were the lights and all that. I, I don't really care about that. What I care about is how, how it made people feel, how it changed their lives and what was going on before that. I think those are far more indi- indicative of what we might be dealing with than, than a, a quote unquote objective assessment of, 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 of physical characteristics or, you know, you know, direction, color, and all that other stuff. Um, I'm sorry I can't be more specific than that. Um, I went and spoke at MUFON recently, which I said I wasn't going to do because I have problems with MUFON, but I was like, well, you know what? These people are nice. It's just the local chapter. I'm not going to get mad at them just because the national organization I don't agree with. But what I told them when I was there was that I've got an idea of how you guys should go out and do some of your investigations with witnesses, especially maybe what you might call abductees. Go out there with a box full of crayons, colored pencils, pens, paper, charcoal, whatever, and hand it to them. When you get there, you'll say, hi, my name is so-and-so. I want to know what happened to you if you want to share it with me. And if you do, here. Give them all those art supplies, and I then say, I'll be back in a week. And you can either give me this, you can give me the material and talk to me about it, or you can never talk to me again. That's fine if this, if this is, if that's what you want to do. And I will, I will not, you know, and I will believe anything you tell me. Don't worry about me making fun of you or believing you too much or thinking, imposing anything upon you. I don't want to. I want you to, I want you to represent for yourself what happened to you. Um, visually. Uh, and if you want to write it out, that's fine too. But uh, I'm not going to ask you any questions until after you're, you're done with that. And after that, I might not ask you any. But just try to be so non-invasive about how you deal with a witness that that maybe some of the stuff that's happened to them is not, and that they experienced is not something that they or you are expecting to come out of them. You see what I mean? It's an interesting um, approach because, you know, obviously somebody out there who is an unbelievable artist must have seen a UFO from many times throughout history. But I don't really recall too many very vivid uh, firsthand accounts or or some sort of pictorial that that is on display that I could point to. I don't remember any. I don't remember a really, really good drawing of a UFO by a really, really good artist. Yeah, but the thing is, I don't care how good of an artist they are. What I care about is them representing to me through means other than verbal as to what happened to them. You bet. I just like to see a really good artist rendition of that, though. I mean, I've seen lots of artists' renditions. Yeah, I don't mind know if I see a crappy artist's rendition. Just something that's not verbal. There's a really good book called um, UFO Drawings from the National Archives. I think Andy Clark edited it or something. Really? But it's, it's from the British National Archives. It's a beautiful book. It's like a book from an art exhibit. Because some of the drawings and the paintings and things are amazing. And they're just things that people, you know, MOD went out and said, the Ministry of Defense went out and said, please draw for us what you saw. And they come up with these amazingly, some of them are beautiful drawings and paintings. Yeah, it's called, um, I think it's just called UFO Drawings from the National Archives. I, I thought I had it near my, my desk here. I, I really don't see it right now, but yeah, the, just look that one up. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I would, I, I actually have planned to, and I would like to curate 
uh, an exhibit of just, and I've, it's been done before, but of people's impressions of uh, something that we call UFOs that they saw. What is what what is their idea of it? And I don't care what it is. It can just be it can be a you know a field of white with with a yellow ball on it, or it can be you know some psychedelic explosion of color, or it can be because I. I think that the right brain in the UFO equation is very much ignored because we worship science so much, which is fine because science gives, gives us great things, but it's only half of our minds. It's only the left half of our brain. The right half is ignored. And the UFO thing definitely affects that right side of the brain. It affects your emotions. It, people, people's lives are changed. They, they quit their jobs. They get, you know, they get divorced. They become gurus, all these things. You know, that, that's a powerful thing, and that can't be explained in, in rows of data. So I think the, the field, like, screams out for somebody that looks at this from a humanities point of view, kind of like, um, you know, I guess somebody like Jeff Kripal, who I've had on my show, who's a religious studies uh, scholar. But, uh, yeah, the humanities have kind of ignored the UFO thing in favor of, you know, chemists and, you know, uh, physicists and you know, these people must know what they're talking about because, you know, the, the, the church of Western society is science. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like I said, it's brought us great things and it's an, and it's an incredible way of getting at truths about many things. But I don't think it gives us the whole truth with the UFO subject. I find it interesting that uh, so many people, and especially now that we're facing such a huge global crisis, they, they combine... Um, extraterrestrials and religion. And uh, I'm seeing more and more of that like on Facebook now. Why do you think that is? Because it touches part of people that can only be addressed by what we call religion. I think. It's, it's just what I was talking about. Somebody's inner life, their emotional life, their, their sense of self, their sense of what life is about, their sense of what happens after you die. All these things are affected by having a UFO encounter. A lot of them are. Um, whether it be just seeing something fairly close up, because if it's like, you know, it's just a light in the sky, people are generally just kind of freaked out a little bit. But somebody gets up real close and personal, like the, you know, close encounter, like 500 feet or less, people start getting a lot more affected by it. Proximity or whatever it is. Um, and that those effects are in areas that have only been addressed by religion up to now. So that's the box we put it in. And I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. As long, you know, as long as you're not telling other people what to do or ruining their lives or stealing money from them or whatever, fine, treat, treat it as a spiritual uh, thing. I want to hear about it. I've heard all kinds of incredible stuff from people that have had these experiences and how it has changed their outlook, usually for the better. Have you seen an evolution of your own opinions of, of what this UFO phenomenon is and, and what it means over the years? Yeah, I mean, what I've just told you is what I'm excited about now. It's happened in the last maybe 10 years. Um, before that, I guess I was more, well, I was always interested in the, like the, the humanities part of it. But I was so bowled over by the science part of it. Like, okay, if we can get, some, you know, anybody that's a hard scientist to get to look at this and realize that there's something really here and that we really should be studying it, then, you know, that'll be good and we'll probably explain it. I don't think so anymore. I think that stuff should be done, but the, the, 
the other half of it should be done too, because it's been completely ignored up to now. So that's my, that's, that's how my opinion has changed. And the other part is um, that the, the, the witness testimony is far more important than the objective, objective information that might come out of that. Meaning if you're an investigator, you have to get to know, and people have told me this, people that are that do these events like MUFON people, no matter what you think of MUFON, which, you know, um, opinions vary, but people that are actually out there talking to these people and finding out what happened to them and asking to explain what happened to them, they um, invariably tell me um, a lot of these, a lot of the witnesses, they don't want to just stand there and tell you what happened and walk away. They want to really tell you what happened and they really want you to understand, maybe not even believe you, but listen. And that the only way you can do that and the only way you can get a good impression about what happened to somebody is not to walk, drive out there one day with a clipboard and talk to them in their living room for an hour or two. You have to develop a relationship with some of these people over years sometimes for some of the things that they that have happened to them to be able to, because they're not going to tell you all that happened in the first meeting. They might tell you a little bit later. It, it's like, it's like, it's almost like, you know, be, be, you know, entering into a relationship with somebody. You don't tell everybody everything right off. Um, it takes a while for, for trust to build up. And when that trust builds up, more of the story comes out and more of the, you know, more of the richness of whatever happened to them comes out. That's a, another thing that, I think people that investigate and talk to witnesses should do is develop a relationship with the person, be truly interested in what they, they have to say. And, 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 um, and if they're having problems, helping them with those problems, if you can, even just by being a sympathetic ear. And I think in the midst of that, you get a little bit more insight into what the UFO is and how it affects people. Um, because the most lasting impression is on people, not on not on cameras and, and, and instruments and all that, and in rows of data. The 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 the, the really um, important connections we make are with people's inner life and with their psyche and with their beliefs and all that. How are those affected? I think if we're looking for any kind of understanding or maybe even answer, I don't know if there is an answer, um, that that's where that's going to lie. And also to look at, like, I just, I, I was kind of pointing to this, what I just said was looking at it as a quest for understanding and not as we're going to solve this and find out where the aliens come from. I think if you're, you're doing that, you're already completely on the wrong track. Talk about um, your book. Um, it defies language because I'm kind of wondering how you came up with that title and, and, uh, it's a cool looking book. That book is a collection of essays I wrote for, for the most part, for a site called UFO Mystic that Nick Redfern and I wrote for, for about, I don't know, five or six years from like 2006 or seven to 2011 or 12, something like that. Um, where, wherein uh, I was assigned to write this blog and I basically kind of everything that I'd been thinking about for the past 20 something years of, being into it, that it all just all came tumbling out of me in a few years. And after like five or six years of this, I said, yep, that's all I want to say. There's nothing. It seems like I've said everything I wanted to say up to this point. I stopped writing. I stopped writing the blog. Um, and then the blog went offline and I think you can see parts of it on archive.org right now. But um, I actually bought the rights to the writing back from the person that originally owned the copyright. Um, 
so that I wouldn't have to give them any money from the book sales, which, which, you know, it kind of made its money back and that's about it. Um, but what was contained in there was a lot of the stuff I was just talking to you about now, all those ideas were developed while I was working on that, working on that blog. A lot of the ideas, um, that, I, that I'm interested in right now were kind of being born. <laughs> I was just starting to think about those things then. And, um, but it went all over the place. I mean, I, I've got, I had to break it up into sections. There's one on, on government stuff, like all that, you know, all that disinformation and, and project beta stuff we talked about that was in there, the people I met, how I interacted with them, how I felt about it. Um, there's a whole section of just my theories about stuff. There's a section of just, um, writings on what would be called conspiracy stuff. There's a whole section on creatures and crop circles and things. Cause I wrote about anything that just came into my mind and what I thought about them. And then some historical pieces. Um, uh, so I put those all together and then I wrote, I think four or five new essays that were never in the, in the blog, just so I wouldn't be just, you know, I, I felt like it would be a cheat just to just regurgitate stuff that had been on the internet completely. So there were, there were, there were like three or four or five new essays in there written just for the book and uh, put these all together. Um, and then my friend, uh, Miguel, Red Pill Junkie, um, I asked him if he would do the cover. He'd never done a book cover, um, but I'd seen some of his caricatures and work. And I said, would you be interested in doing a book cover? And he did an amazing book cover. It's beautiful. It's a stunningly beautiful book cover. It looks like, it looks like an old science fiction movie poster really um and uh as the time was coming up for me to publish um and this is you know my self-imposed deadline as the time was coming up he was saying you know i've left room for a title but you haven't given me a title yet so i can't finish this artwork till you give me a title and i kept thinking and thinking and thinking and i couldn't think of one or i didn't like any of them so what i did you know what a cut up is no. In, uh, it's a technique invented by the writer William Burroughs where you take a whole bunch of uh, phrases um, and just cut them into strips. Because he used to do this in the 1950s. Right. Just cut, cut strips of text out of books, dictionaries, newspapers, magazines, everything. And then just throw them in the air and then just start pushing them down randomly. It's almost like, ma you know, evocational magic almost. Anyway, so I took the introduction I wrote to the book and I went to an online cut-up generator, which would take anything you put into it and jumble it into a bunch of gibberish. And so everything that I wanted to express in that book was now randomized into gibberish, just a bunch of phrases and sometimes just, you know, orphaned words, but usually, you know, four or five words or sometimes a sentence or two, but they're all completely, you know, randomized. And then I sat down and I looked at what it, it, it had jumbled them into. I cleared my mind out and sort of just started writing down whatever came into my mind while I was reading the gibberish. And like four or five phrases came out. And one of them was, it defies language. And that's why I named, that's what I named the book. <laughs> <Very nice. laughs> I thought it was really funny to call a book, <laughs> it defies language, that was a book written in language, you know. Right. So how do you feel about once your book is on Amazon, do you ever go, uh, do you read the reviews? Because most of your... I do. I mean, the book's like three years old now or right. two or three years old. And I read the reviews, but 
after Project Beta, I decided to not care what people said in reviews because I took them very personally at first because everybody does that. Oh, yeah. you know, your first book, first big book comes out and people are, some people love it and some people hate it. And the ones that hate it, you're just like, you know, I want to, I want to kill you because you didn't even read the book. I don't think like I had run reviews like this person never, you know, the author never talks about this. It's like, I talked about it like four times in the book. Did you even read it? Like they, they, I, I can't remember what the review was. Oh, we, we never find out. We never find out why Benowitz, um, uh, they didn't tell him to just shut up and leave him alone. It's like, you know, uh, Go, go look in the index about what it wasn't even that. Cause I did mention that three or four times. There was some of it's like, why didn't you mention this person? It's like, I did mention that person. It's in the index. <laughs> Here are the page numbers. <laughs> so you get to the point. It's like, okay, if you're dealing with that mindset, like I already know what I want to say and I don't really care what was in the book because this is what I, this is my opinion about it. People have already made up their minds. I mean, this is a normal human thing. I'm not saying that people are evil or horrible. But people make up their minds about what they want, what the, what they want to hear, and they will write their review or read whatever you wrote with those blinders on. And you can you can tell them that you mentioned something till 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 you know you want to kill them or yourself, but it's, it's not going to make any difference. So after a while, you realize that if somebody doesn't really have a good point, you shouldn't really care what they say. And I say that to friends of mine that write books and for the first time they're getting these bad reviews. And my first question is, do you know this person? No. Do you care about what their opinion is? Really? No. Then why should you care what they wrote? You know, unless they have a really good point, which most people don't, it's, it's best to just ignore it. I mean, and, and move on. That's, I, I sell t-shirts that say do not engage on them partially for that reason. Don't, don't let people who, do, who aren't worth your time drag you down. And you'll know when somebody's worth your time because they'll say something that really makes really makes you think. If it just makes you mad, then too bad. But if it makes you think, like, huh, I wonder if they really kind of do have a point. And then you have to address that. But most people just want to complain because they want to hear the read their own words or hear their own voice or whatever. Because they have no they haven't, you know, I will trust a reviewer that it's actually written books themselves more than I will just some dumb person on Amazon that just uh never made an effort to do anything except criticize other people. And if that's the case, why should I care what they say? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it still hurts a little bit, but who cares? I was reading your reviews on, on Amazon and, and yesterday, well, and it was about a week ago, I guess I didn't, I posted it. Didn't have anything to do with your book, but um, so I was going to go in and, and check out your books and read the reviews and, and on right. And Amazon opened up and had the, uh, the uh, King James version of the Bible. So I was like, I wonder what the reviews look like for that. One of them, <laughs> one of them said erotic fanfic about a crucified Jew. So I just couldn't even imagine. Is there somebody out there who was just like browsing the stacks somewhere and just grabbed the Bible and they'd never heard of it. You know, it, it was that kind of review. And I just thought, no way. I mean, how, how could that even be? And they were, they talked about, yeah, that didn't really work for me. So I gave it to a friend. But um, and the views are crazy. I mean, so, some are great. I and mean, I love the creativity. And some people really put in a lot of effort. And I think you would appreciate that. Oh, there, there that. ought to be a book of just funny reviews. Absolutely. I think there's a website or something. To tell, I mean, there's famous ones, the Tuscan Milk uh, thing and the, the two, moon, uh, uh, two, two Moon Wolf T-shirt. That has good reviews. My favorite one is for um, How to Avoid Large Ships. That's an actual book. Large read ships? The, read, large ships, like ocean ships. <laughs> 
It's a, it's a book by somebody <laughs> that I guess was a tugboat, um, tugboat <laughs> operator, and he wrote a book on how to avoid large ships. <laughs> and the reviews for that are a riot. They're so good. You know, I never knew, you know, I never knew I'd have this problem with large ships, but I'm glad Captain Brian Temmer has told me that uh, how to avoid them because one was coming right down my street and I didn't know what to do. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> You're um, also included as the author of an essay collection called UFOs Reframing the Debate. Um, what are your favorite contributions? Hmm? Sorry. What are your favorite contributions to that? Well, I guess uh, I'll start with friends of mine, Susan Deminer St. Clair. She has an essay about the importance of details given by UFO witnesses, which entered directly into my opinion that I just told you a little while ago. Um, don't ignore things people are telling you when they're telling you about their strange experiences, because that is the heart of the experience, not what you think it is, but what they, they think it is. And that was her point of her essay. Um, Miguel, again, RPJ, Red Pill Junkie. He had an uh, essay about uh, how the study of UFOs actually transformed him, like an alchemical transformation of his, his ideas and his um, the direction of his life and all that, how important it was to him and his personal journey to be interested in the subject. I thought that was really good. Um, my friend Robert Brandstetter, um, he had another one that was a personal essay on like his emotional life and wish, witnesses' emotional lives. Um, and their reactions to a, a sighting and how that affected them emotionally. Um, let's see who else. Oh, Josh Cutchin wrote some, and he's about he just he he's about to release a book on um, uh, paranormal Bigfoot. Him and Tim Renner did, but he wrote an essay on um, uh, materialism and how that sh that should be uh, that uh, UFO study should move away from the the uh, the idea of materialism, meaning these are physical ships coming from other planets with aliens in them. That may be true, that, that, that is totally possible, but that's not the only way we could think about it. And so he pointed out um, other ways we could think about it. And I can't, Chris Rutkowski, who's a Canadian researcher, he wrote a, um, I think his essay leads off the, the uh, collection, and I think it was specifically put in there to irritate uh, UFO believers, because he said, people believe too hard. You know, <laughs> that the field is made up of a lot of belief and very little actual um, questioning things. And I thought that was important to say that, you know, I, I don't, I might not agree with all these people on everything, but I do agree with them on there. Things have to change and people have to notice how they're looking at things. And that's what the whole book basically was about. I think Micah Hanks, um, who you probably know about, he wrote something about um, uh, actually using science. Um, why is science important? Why, how can it be revised to study um, something that's, you know, doesn't conform to what science wants to do? So the, I, I, I felt that was a good one, too. So that's just a few of the essays in there. I think there's 16, 16, 16 or 17 total essays in there. Those, those are just the ones I can think of right now. You had or we had uh, exchanged a couple of texts over the past few weeks, and, and you mentioned um, the co-creation hypothesis. Yeah, that's the I wrote about that first in the. Um, in uh, Wake Up Down There, I'm sorry, that's the first one, um, in uh, It Defies Language, I wrote a little essay about that, and then I expanded it to like 5,000 words in uh, Reframing the Debate. Um, but my idea in that was, um, some of the stuff I've already been saying, the instrument that we have for recording UFO uh, sightings is us. 
and we're notoriously inaccurate. That doesn't mean that what, that we should ignore what people say. On contrary, it's very important to listen to what people say. But we have to realize that our visual system is inaccurate. It's, it's put there to help us survive. Our nervous system is inaccurate. It's put there to help us survive. Um, our memories are inaccurate. We have memories so that we don't repeat things that caused us problems emotionally or physically. We don't remember them accurately. And I, I bring up this guy, Donald Hoffman, who's a, a, a neuroscientist from uh, UC Irvine. He's written a couple books on this. Um, but what, you know, his idea is that uh, we evolved our nervous systems, and our memories and our senses and our visual systems to help us survive, not to help us be accurate about our environment. So if that's the case, People that are seeing UFOs are seeing something they've never seen before that totally, you know, surprises them. In many cases, turns their worldview upside down and just generally freaks them out. And in that case, you know, how accurate is what they told us? How, how accurate is that going to be? And that, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen because it's inaccurate. It just means that we shouldn't take as gospel what our senses appear to be telling us about the external world. And I, I don't think that's been addressed very um, uh, very deeply in the, in the UFO community. Um, and I'm trying to expand that into a book actually right now. So that, that, that's what I'm working on right now. Um, and then the other idea that I brought in to that essay is the idea of um, another thing that fascinates me, which is in information theory, which is the theory that the basis of all reality is made up of information, not atoms and, and, uh, electrons and quarks and neutrons and protons and whatever other uh, subatomic particles there are, but that those particles are created by our, <laughs> our experience of looking at the universe. Like there, there has to be a consciousness ex uh, experiencing it before it becomes more than just undifferentiated information. And that sounds kind of new agey and it's and, and a little, a little squirrely, but I found out that the originator, one of the originators of that idea, was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, John Archibald Wheeler, who, who uh, called it the, what did he call it? The anthropic principle of, 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 uh, of reality, meaning we're, we're, we're involved in creating the reality that we experience, no matter how much we think we can use instruments or whatever. These are all extensions of our ideas and our senses. So where does that leave us? It means that there's an unknowable reality that is, is shaped by our expectations of it. And I guess there's a lot of people that are science oriented with that would, would disagree with me there, but you know, how much of this is self-reflexive, how much of it is things that we're going to find out anyway. And that just fits in with our ideas about what, what reality is like reality was whatever's going on, maybe far weirder or less concrete than we think it is. But the way we study it, um, uh, creates what we think it is and maybe just creates that reality because we have nothing else to go on, right? We just think it's reality and that's fine. But when you get into things that don't make any sense, like a UFO sighting, um, these, th that issue becomes more relevant. As somebody told me, I, I was talking to a, a longtime UFO researcher um, and he said um, he was intrigued with this idea because in a physical universe, in a classical physical universe, UFO sightings are extremely strange and they don't make any sense. But in an informational universe where we participate with it and participate in creating that reality, 
it's almost like it's almost like that should be happening, you know, UFOs and Bigfoot and all that in an informational universe, that's totally normal. <laughs> it's not an anomaly. So that, that, um, uh, that in, in, in slightly bigger than a small nutshell, that that's what the co-creation thing is, as I see it. Very nice. Um, here's a, here's a big one, big last long question. Any projects you're working on now and what do you do to keep sane right now? Because things are a lot different, but um, what's it going to look like a year from now from you? And what do you do to step away from the UFO subject and enjoy yourself? Not that you can't enjoy yourself on the UFO subject. Cause we no, certainly I do. do. I mean, that's, that's like, you know, yeah. it's a, it's, it's an intellectual exercise and it's, and it's interesting. And I mean, this, like, like Miguel said in his essay in, in reframing the debate, it's like, I would not have known the people I know met the people I've met, had the experiences I've had, and gone to the places I've gone without this interest. So apart from the weirdness of the UFO stuff and all that, I've made great friends and had really nice conversations and had incredible uh, experiences just because of that interest. So who cares if I figure out what's going on? I almost don't care about that. You know, the journey's more important. So, um, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know where the future of this is going. I, I think that there's one side of it that's the nuts and bolts. Um, what can we do with this side? That's the kind of the, um, you know, the deep, the, the, the deep black stuff, the, the, the tech stuff, the what can we do to exploit this? What we see as UFOs, the thing that the thing that TTSA says they're doing, um, there's that side of it. And then, you know, possibly one on it, Skinwalker and all that. Um, but then there's the other side of it, which is that humanity side, which is, um, I think that's the most exciting thing. And that, that's why I'm making an effort. If, uh, if people go to radiomysterioso.com, they'll see in the last, I guess, year or so, I've made a distinct effort to talk to academics. I don't want to talk so much to UFO researchers. Well, a lot of them are friends of mine, but I want to talk to people that are just new to this, that are that have a background in, in, uh, in research, have a background in not trying to jump to conclusions and have a way to, to, um, look at this, that people that without those special, you know, specialized training can do. Like I had Jeff Kripal on, he's a religious studies professor. He's looking at it from the humanities perspective. Um, I had this guy, Chris White on, he's a, um, I think a history professor at Vassar. And we talked about people's ideas about extra uh, extra dimensions beyond the three dimensions and how that's affected science and the arts and um, literature and uh, politics even um, and culture since people started thinking about alternate dimensions. Um, that that to me is fascinating. I think it has really strong bearing on the UFO question. Um, and uh, I, I think that the more that people like that get interested and get involved with the subject and, you know, it's, it used to be your, I, your, you know, your, your career was dead if you even expressed interest in this, but I think that's changed quite a bit. And that's exciting to me. I think, I think that's great. Um, uh, as for what I do on not doing the UFO thing, I actually, I ha actually have a music show on uh, every Monday on WFMU, which is a station in New Jersey. Um, right all on. they've been doing, yeah, since for like 20 or more years. I don't know how long they've been cool. around. They just play unusual music. Like, give me like an example. Um, 
like where else are you going to hear uh, what Fred Frith or Robert Fripp or or somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, like, you know, old, old hillbilly music by people who have no record contract, you know, just anything that doesn't fit in with, with a popular genre, or if it does, something that people don't normally hear. Like, I'll go on my show and I'll play everything from, you know, really inept versions of Jimi Hendrix to old, you know, old cowboy music from the 30s and, um, uh, uh, I play UFO music. I've got a collection of about 200 uh, flying saucer and UFO songs. So every Monday uh, on their streaming service, which is called Sheena's Jungle Room, on Mondays, and I guess um, when you put up the show, I'll put a link to that. On Monday afternoons um, at uh, 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock Pacific for an hour, I play wacky music every week. Um, and... Uh, so that's one thing I do. And I collect that stuff too. I mean, I've been collecting records and weird music my whole life. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is um, uh, I have a pilot's license and I have a, a ultralight and a paraglider. So I, and, and uh, I, I do that. I do uh, not as much now, but um, I, I still keep that up. I actually fly quite a bit because I like flying. Um, and I have a drone business too, where I, I go out and take a video of, I work on, Films, TV shows, construction sites, you know, surveying uh, uh, um, farms and solar farms and things like that. But, so that's another thing that I do. Um, and I think that's that. That's <laughs> a lot, that's Greg. <laughs> that's a lot of stuff, man. Um, my guest has been Greg Bishop, author and researcher, and he has so much information out there to keep you busy for a very, very long time. So. Uh, everybody has some time, so please make some time for Greg Bishop. Greg Bishop, thank you so much. Thanks, Cameron. It was a lot of fun. My Alien Life Podcast. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and at podbean.com and please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records. Music